Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And I'm Rachel. And this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the Supreme Court's ruling on the Rwanda scheme, Suella Braverman's scathing departing letter to Rishi Sunak after she was fired from government on Monday, and a little bit about Labour's rebellion. Hello, I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain editor at The New Statesman and host of this podcast. And in the studio, joining me, I have Rachel Cunliffe, our associate political editor, and Freddie Haywood, our political correspondent. So there's been so much politics this week, guys, but we really do want to concentrate on the Rwanda scheme because that is probably uh, the most significant sort of policy story that we've had this week. But before we go into it, we've got to talk about last night's ceasefire vote because it was the biggest rebellion that Keir Starmer has faced as Labour leader. And 56 Labour MPs defied the party line to vote for a ceasefire in Gaza. And that led to 10 MPs actually resigning from their uh, front bench positions, probably the most prominent being Jess Phillips. A, because she's a well-known politician, shadow minister for domestic violence. She's been on the front bench a while. But also B, because she is not from the socialist campaign group. She's not a left-wing MP in the sense of, you know, the sort of old Corbynites might be described. So it suggests there's, you know, more going on than a rebellion against Keir Starmer on uh, factional lines. Yeah, completely. But we did know that these dividing lines were already there. This has been bubbling around for two or three weeks now. This was the first time... Uh, in the House of Commons that we've had such an explicit vote on it. So it was expected that many people would rebel. But the other thing I think that is worth noting is that because we've had this now, I think there's a chance it will probably die down. Mm. People have expressed their opinion. They can say to their constituents, look, when it came up, I voted in this way. Um, And Keir Starmer can say that we've not U-turned. So I don't think it's as bad for Keir Starmer as some people are necessarily portraying, particularly because um, if it does settle down within the party, then I think there's a, there's a big chance of people returning to the front benches. You've got to remember that there's a very small cohort of MPs that Starmer actually 
uh, can pick from for the front bench. Uh, so he hasn't got that many people. So I think it's likely that both he and those who have resigned will probably want to return to their previous arrangement. Yeah, because some of them had actually already resigned. So I was looking yeah. at some of the names. Dan Carden, who's a yeah, PPS. He's, he's he he resigned over the spy cops vote a, a few years yeah. ago now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and they'll want to be in government. It's the first time that Labour's going to be in government for 13 years and they won't want to miss out on that opportunity. Um, so, yeah, I don't think we should overreact how, how bad this is for Keir Starmer. It's obviously not great for his authority, uh, but they have been sacked. Um, so he stuck to his word on that. They haven't called for him to resign. Um, so, you know, if you look at Jess Phillips's resignation letter, it's very clear that she supports Keir Starmer and she will support it's the... Very measured, it's, it's very measured. Yeah. It's very measured. It's very specific. It's very much this is a conscience issue exactly. for her it's very and specific. Her and John McDonnell made this point last night on ITV as well. Uh, this is a, almost a one-off. And maybe, you know, John McDonald was saying maybe this should have been a free vote mm. um, as he thinks um, other sort of moral issues uh, should be in the House of Commons. So if it is uh, restricted to the issue of Gaza rather than, you know, bleeding into issues of tax or, or benefits or whatever it is, then I don't think it's too much of a problem for well, the case. Well, that's the thing that I thought might just end up being a problem because they often say, don't they, politicians, that once you rebel, it's so much yeah. easier to rebel again, especially if you don't have a front bench position, so less to lose. And I noticed in your piece about the Oxford councillors who resigned um, over this issue mm. that some of them were also mentioning the two-child benefit cap and sort of framing this as, well, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. So, you know, there could be, for some of these MPs who are not ideologically aligned to Starmer, there could be other chances for them to rebel, although, you know, admittedly, it's not a huge block. Yeah, though it's different for councils just because they're not or dangled uh, government jobs in front of them <laughs> and the, the whip op whipping operation isn't doesn't work in the same way. And I also think that if it is just... Uh, restricted to Corbynites, then it's not that big a problem for Keir Starmer. He's been very clear that he doesn't want uh, Corbynites to necessarily be part of his project if mm -hmm. they're going to profess their views that they're used to. Um, so, and if that just happens again, I think that's fine. And I, I think the point about being on the cusp of being in government is a really key one. I think you've got to remember that the kind of person who wants to be an MP, wants to go into politics, yeah. you do that because the vast majority of them, you have an eye to one day being in government and one day being a minister and one day possibly being in the cabinet and maybe even being prime minister one day. I mean, that is kind of, to, to go into politics and have a political career, you have to sort of have that as your ambition, even if lots of them say that they don't. And for Labour, you know, 13 years in the wilderness, now looking like they are going to win that election and the chance of actually being in government and having a chance to make a real difference, it's, it's right there. If you're the kind of person who has gone into politics with that ambition, are you going to completely throw away all of your chances over something which you might feel very passionately about, but isn't going to have any kind of impact? I mean, nobody is suggesting that Israel and Hamas, neither of which want a ceasefire, are looking to what the Labour Party in the UK says about it. Yeah. Like, it's not going to have uh, and real world for, impact. Thankfully for Starmer, actually, um, the Rwanda ruling has sort of pushed this off the top of the headlines. Um, you know, the government seems to be very good at snatching the news agenda just mm. as the opposition is looking wobblier than it, than it has been in, in recent months. So you've had this. But um, let's talk about this Rwanda ruling because it was quite um, comprehensive, wasn't it? It was a unanimous ruling that the Rwanda plan, which is to deport asylum seekers coming to the UK to Rwanda to be processed and then to stay, 
um, that, that that's illegal. And actually, um, we've not had such a comprehensive decision on this in the courts, even though it's been through legal battles before. So the High Court actually ruled the plan lawful back in December last year. Um, and then after an appeal, the Court of Appeal ruled in June 2-1 that it was unlawful. And now the Supreme Court has unanimously said that it's unlawful. So that's quite a um, bad outcome for the government, which I think was hoping for a more caveated ruling. Yeah, I think uh, certainly if you take Solar Bravman's word for, for it, the government was hoping and expecting that they would they would win this or they would win it or they would lose it uh, less comprehensively. Mm. I think two things to keep in mind about it. The court wasn't ruling and they were very, very clear about this. Lord Reed, who gave the judgment, was very clear. It was not ruling on the concept, the principle of can you uh, send asylum seekers to a third country and process them there. And that as a principle is is fine. It was specifically on can you send them to Rwanda? Is Rwanda a safe country to have that kind of agreement with? And specifically, can you be sure that Rwanda's immigration systems and asylum seeker processing systems and, and facilities and, and institutions and courts are robust enough to ensure that they don't get sent back to their country of origin. Yes, because it was finding it, that Rwanda was rejecting applications from people who had fled from Syria and, all and Afghanistan. So, ninety-five percent of those who came from Syria, Afghanistan, they were they were rejecting. That is, it's a very large technicality, but that is a technicality. And if the government's strategy was, we want people to know that if they come to the UK, they could be sent away and processed somewhere else. And crucially, not just processed somewhere else, but even if their claim is upheld, then they get asylum in that third country rather than in Britain. Conceptually, the court went, that's fine, but not Rwanda. What does this mean for the government? How disappointing is this? Because I suppose there is that sort of chink of optimism that the idea of the third country model for asylum processing isn't out of the question legally. Yeah, so the government uh, could respond in two ways, I think. They could say that we're going to ignore all of the legal frameworks that require uh, the UK not to send people to places that that could then return them to the original country. Say the word, say the word. The refoulement, I think Ref it is. Refoulement. Um, that's the legal principle. Refool me once. She's <laughs> like morning call and you come on, you're too late. Um, yes, yeah, so that's the principle that prevents the government from doing that. The problem, and the problem with the discourse at the moment within the Conservative Party is that principle is contained in many different legal frameworks. It's not just the ECHR. Yeah. Um, it's also the UN Convention on Torture. It's the UN Covenant on Civil Rights, Civil and Political Rights. Yeah. Uh, it's also included in Domestic Laws and Immigration Act from 1993 that is included in. There's one from the noughties as well. It's also in the HRA, in the Human Rights Act. So it's contained both within international frameworks and in domestic law. So if the government did want to basically uh, rescind its obligations, its legal obligations under that, under all of those frameworks, it would have to go through them one by one. So that's part of the problem. And that's part of the problem with just saying, why can't we leave the ECHR and then we'll be able to deport people mm. to Rwanda. So the second option, therefore, is can you try and help the Rwandan government improve their system so there isn't this risk about sending them to the original country? James Cleverly was on the radio this morning suggesting that's essentially their, their plan. It's worth noting that the problems with the Rwandan system that the court highlighted are quite serious. 
So, for instance, they say that so the Rwandan system at all levels, apart from the top one, includes government officials, which makes it obviously not very objective. Mm. At the top, you have the high court where the appeal can eventually go to. That's never been used since right. it was set up in 2018. So there's no justification or evidence that there's a sort of impartial judicial process that happens in Rwanda. So that's one of the concerns. There are other concerns, as you pointed to, about the fact that Israel and Rwanda have had schemes in the past. Yes. And there has been reformment there. So there's lots of evidence to suggest that the Rwandan immigration system isn't set up in a way that allows it to do this. Now, the question is, can that be improved going forward? The government are confident it is. The reason I think that would be tricky is because the government doesn't have time to do that. Remember, we've got the, the election in the next 12 months or so. Can they improve the system with Rwanda? Can they pass this new treaty? Can they get planes sent away within six months? Yeah, well, I thought this was really interesting because Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, explicitly said that this could have an electoral impact if they yeah. don't get flights off by spring, which I think is quite weird. <laughs> I think it's weird that they're being explicit about one of the main reasons for this policy to win an election rather than the kind yeah. of, you know, because they're trying to make a moral argument from it. James Cleverly, the new Home Secretary, was speaking this morning about the morality of uh, having schemes like this. So yeah, it's, but they're it's very quite clear. odd that they're so transparent about the fact that this is literally, you know, they're putting stop the boats on, on um, you know, on lecterns to try and attract some votes from their Yeah, well, at least they're being honest. And also they, <laughs> they, they, they're clear that this is what the public wants. That's their, yeah. like, populist argument. This is what the, the public people's wants. Priorities. We have to. We have to deliver mm -hmm. it. Well, conversely, electorally, you've also seen suggestions that if they could call an early election on the basis of this, you know, make it explicit. Let's go to the people again in the same way as Boris went to the people for get Brexit done. Let's go to the people for get Rwanda done. The polling on this, I mean, it's a really complicated issue. And the problem with polling it is that the principle of stopping illegal channel crossings, that has high popularity. When it comes to Rwanda, it depends how you ask it. If you ask, uh, should the government basically ignore international law, then the majority of people say, no, it should do everything that it can within the law. I think mm. it was uh, about 20, 19 to 20% of, of people polled said that it should do anything, including ignoring international law, which is sort of what Lee Anderson, one of our favourites, <laughs> the, uh, the deputy chair of the Conservative Party, suggested. So it is one of those issues where some people argue, you know, the public really want the Rwanda scheme to take off. And actually, if you look at the polling, it's a bit more nuanced than that. And the problem is that the government, Rishi Sunak, has done a really, really good job over the last year of highlighting illegal channel crossings, mm. how many boats are coming, how much of an issue it is. It's got lots of publicity. It's often on the front pages. Now there's an internal row over Suella Braverman and the wings of the party over it. So great, well done. You've highlighted the problem. Mm. You've also highlighted the fact that the government can't solve it or hasn't been able to solve it. So there is a danger that the more attention you put on this, look at how hard we're working to make sure that the Rwanda scheme happens, that gets read as, hang on, you're the government, why haven't you fixed it already? Yeah. And so what has Rishi Sunak's response been? Because he called this press conference in the afternoon to respond to the yeah. Supreme Court's ruling. And, and, you know, he was hinting that they may have to, you know, pull out of the European Convention on Human Rights if it came to it. But first they're going to pass a law. They're going to pass a law that says Rwanda is safe. Well, yeah, explain yes. that. So explain there's that. two parts. Yeah. So 
they're going to uh, try and get a treaty with uh, Rwanda, which is legally binding, which requires Rwanda not to send people back to their original uh, country. Mm. That's the first part. That's to address the concern that Rwanda, uh, because their system isn't well set up, will inevitably send people um, where places that they shouldn't be. The second part, which is the interesting part, which is also the slightly ludicrous part, is that they have said they're going to pass a law to just slim- simply declare Rwanda a safe place. Which could face challenges in the Lords um, if they if they try to pass that emergency legislation. Jonathan Sumption. Hmm. Uh, he the, isn't exactly, you know, the he's classic not a lefty enemy. Lawyer, no, no, no. Y- usually, yeah. usually he's on yeah. sort of the, the the conservative side. Has been like laws aren't magic. You can't just pass a law and change the facts. Yeah, he, he called it constitutionally bizarre or something. He's just they just declaring the world to be in a way that he wanted they want it to be. It is r- remarkable. I don't know how that would then work legally. I assume there would be lots of legal challenges to it, and then you get back into the original problem of not being able to. Uh, send off flights full of migrants because it's all jammed up in the courts. Mm. So they are in a bit of a bind. But I, I don't know whether, the, you know, the question with this is often, is it just about proving that you're trying to do something? I'm not sure that necessarily suffices anymore because the boats, they do keep coming and people are getting angrier and angrier. Yeah. And then I think there's also a sense within the party that this system, this legal international system uh, within which these policies are made does have to change. And Neil O'Brien just said, uh, I think he said last night, there's not just one thing that needs fixing, though we do need to start by overriding the Human Rights Act. You can't just tweak a treaty, he says. This needs to be an overhauling of the whole system itself. So does the Conservative Party want to do that if it wants to actually set up this policy properly? Or does it want to get gummed up in the courts week after week? Cause it, it does seem as if Rishi Sunak doesn't want to leave the ECHR We've seen, I think, since he came in, a much greater respect for international law than his predecessors. Obviously, that's a low bar. But <laughs> he, he, I think, probably would have said he wanted to leave if he did, because that's what his party wants him to yeah, do. Yeah, and he has surrounded himself now with uh, senior ministers who have been on the record saying that they don't want to do that. So you've got James Cleverley, yeah. David Cameron uh, would not be keen on that, I don't think. Um, and you've Alex Chalk, I think, was talking about the, the importance of the rule of law as well. He's the Justice Secretary. So it would you know, be quite difficult for them to cross that Rubicon, but it does seem like they are sort of on the inevitable march to saying they want to leave some of our domestic and international human rights and refugee obligations, which, to be fair, you know, could be the future that we're looking at in all of Europe. So not all of Europe, but in other European countries as well, because Denmark's explored a similar Rwanda scheme. Italy, Germany and Austria all looking at those third country models. They're all going to come under pressure from either, you know, further right parties in, in their countries, but also perhaps the public to leave some of these frameworks, which, you know, some of them were written up quite a long time ago. You've got MPs like like Neil O'Brien saying that they need change. I mean, is this, a, you know, is this an international future that we're looking at? Well, it's a global crisis. And one of the downsides of fixating on is Rwanda going to work, is the, are we going to leave the ECHR, is that you miss the global context, which is the most European countries the challenge is even worse there. They take vastly more numbers mm. of refugees and also have similar debates going on in their politics. Italy, Georgia Maloney is very focused on this issue. There is um, lots of talk with the EU about working with countries like Albania, yeah. Turkey. Um, it's more of an issue for countries in southern Europe, Italy, Greece. 
this isn't going away. And that's why the kind of quite myopic British view of let's mm. just send them back to France misses the point that France is also facing these challenges and to, to a higher extent than Britain is. Labour's approach to this or what they've said they'll do is focus more on tackling the problem at source. So working with other countries on trafficking gangs, trafficking routes. Uh, you've also got to have a conversation about legal routes for the UK, which we've talked about. Like if the one of the things that gets missed is that the majority of people who cross the channel illegally, so they they have made illegal crossings, then get their asylum seeker applications upheld. They are genuine asylum seekers mm. and maybe they wouldn't make those illegal crossings if there were legal ways for them to come to the country and claim asylum, which nobody ever wants to talk about. Uh, and then there's also the issue... But it is issue, in the Illegal Migration Bill. Legal routes are in that bill. It is in the Illegal Migration Bill, but it hasn't actually happened. <laughs> yeah, they said there will... We will explore. They will bring it in after they've stopped any channel crossings, which, yes. you know, some would argue that it you actually to do, has to be the other way around. Oh, the around. To stop. Yeah. And then there's the issue of offshoring, just the processing of it, which is different to the Rwanda scheme, which is you can process applications without people being in Britain. Right now you have to physically be in the UK to have your yeah. asylum claim processed in the UK. So, yeah, lots of countries are looking at it. They're trying to explore different mechanisms they're facing the same challenges but it seems pretty obvious that if you want any kind of long-term solution it has to be working with other countries not just going we're an island we can put up a big fence yeah though to be fair the government have been very focused on working with many other countries the diplomacy with europe has been much greater in the past year the uh, focus on cooperation with albania yeah. but, france italy is much greater it. than they, it was. They, they're doing they, they it. they're doing to. the work but they don't talk about the fact that they're actually the effective stuff that they're doing they always talk about rwanda instead it's Titanic. yeah and then just on the inevitable path that we mm. might now be on with the echr if you do set up this battle and if we do have quite clearly written down in a Supreme Court judgment that one of the key reasons that this policy can't work is this international legal framework. Yes. Well, then, okay, in five years' time, in the same way that we had this sort of snowball effect with the EU, are we going to inevitably have the Conservative Party calling for our derogation or our, our leaving of these exactly, international Exactly, because, you know, David frameworks. Cameron, who people see now as a Remainer, I mean, he... Spoke in Eurosceptic terms for a very long time, which built this idea in the public imagination of Europe being some kind of blocker to the UK's, you know, uh, priorities and sovereignty. And I, I can see the similar thing happening. I know you're right, Sunak doesn't seem keen to do it, but he's hinting at it quite a lot all the time. Yeah, you give momentum and you, if you fight the issue, that you, you, you inevitably work out what the problem is. I think, again, we must say that one of the problems, the key problem here, as you said, Rachel, is with Rwanda and their actual uh, state infrastructure. And that's the key problem here. But the background is all of these legal agreements that the UK has signed up to and negotiated and promoted around the world for the past 50, 60 years. After the break, we'll be unpicking Suella Braverman's explosive parting letter to Rishi Sunak. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. 
it's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Someone who would be keen to leave and someone who actually predicted the outcome of the Supreme Court ruling was Suella Braverman, the oh, former Home Secretary. Oh, could you talk Secretary. about the letter? And we haven't managed to speak <laughs> about the letter. Um, we talked about the fact that she was sacked from government in our emergency reshuffle yeah. podcast. But why don't we go through some of the um, sort of most eviscerating things in this quite extraordinary letter? It wasn't a resignation letter. It was just a letter she sent to Sunak following her departure from a government. Parting letter. It was yeah, parting, a parting was, shot, uh, really. It was very much a, you're not breaking up with me, I'm breaking up with you <laughs> yeah. letter. So she said, you've manifestly and repeatedly failed to deliver on every single one of these key policies. And there she's talking about this um, supposed deal that she made with him uh, when she gave him her support, remember, during that sort of mm. second slight Tory leadership campaign after Liz Truss's government failed. Um, apparently, he promised to pass these key policy areas uh, in order to get her support and for her to come in and be Home Secretary. Reduce legal migration, as set out in the manifesto. That's, you know, been it's a long-standing well. Tory policy. Um, include specific clauses into new legislation to stop the boats. So everything we've been talking about here, about the ECHR, the Human Rights Act, to try and ignore these laws and get that policy passed. And then the Northern Ireland Protocol and retained EU, EU law bills in their existing form and timetable to deliver that. Um, obviously, they ditched the retained EU law bill. Um, and... Unequivocal statutory guidance to schools that protects biological sex and actually teachers are still waiting for yeah. guidance on that. So there's quite a few things here that have fallen by the wayside. If we trust the fact that uh, Sunak did assure Braverman that these would be his priorities, then, you know, uh, she's suggesting that he's broken his word to her. No, she's suggesting that he's broken his word to the country. Mm. Um, and you get that word uh, betrayal, both of both of her and of the people who voted in 2019 for the Conservative Party. So it actually reminded me a little bit of um, Nadine Dora's resignation letter over the summer, which was her standing down as, a, as an MP, but really emphasising Sunak's lack of mandate either from voters across the country yeah. or from Conservative members. Um, if you look at those four priorities, I don't think this is aimed at Sunak. This is, this is a leadership uh, campaign in in waiting because actually the issue of um, guidance to schools and, and biological sex that's not something that Suella Braverman has talked a huge amount about that's not I mean she's talked about protests and she's talked about law and order and you talked in the podcast earlier about how her comments on people rough sleeping and living in tents being a lifestyle choice that kind of provocative language being one of the triggers for Sunak's decision to, to sack her. Um, I'm not saying she doesn't believe that, but that is very clearly aimed at garnering support of a wing of the party for whom that is a really, really crucial issue. Um, and she didn't need to send this letter. <laughs> Certainly, usually letters, it's two and a half pages. Mm. Like Usually resignation letters or letters from MPs, ministers who've been sacked are not that long. It's a manifesto document for what comes next. Yeah, and one of the remarkable things is that she says there's a document with all of this written down on, so that they, her and she and Rishi Sunak got together, wrote a document, agreed on it. They almost make it 
sound as if they signed like this she says, our, contract. Yeah, our deal was, was not a mere promise over dinner to be discarded when convenient and denied when challenged. I think that's a that's a reference to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's <laughs> agreement <laughs> yeah. over dinner. But uh, I think what's what, what's that phrase? Provide provide the receipts, see the receipts, I have the receipts. Yeah, yeah. and then it sounds like she really has been putting everything in writing because she's saying how often she sort of wrote to him about a credible plan B for the Rwanda scheme if the Supreme Court um, ruled it unlawful. Um, and so I think, you know, you, we might end up seeing some of these messages that she sent him um, and this contract that she hints at. Yeah, there have been briefings in the paper this week suggesting that she has this sort of dossier of stuff on Rishi Sunak that she might release. I just think it's interesting that her and Sunak are not actually that far apart on some of these things. Yeah. We touched on this on Monday. Yeah, we did. This is a, this, the points that she's making are actually quite technical points about legislation, like the fact that she thinks that we should have notwithstanding clauses in Stop the Boats legislation. Okay, that's very important because it's about whether or not you abide by the international frameworks we were talking about earlier. However, the objective is still the same. I don't think we can doubt Rishi Sunak's desire to stop the boat. He's literally pitched his whole leadership on this key issue. And that's one of the reasons that the Supreme Court court judgment is so important uh, because it's just taking the legs out of something that he spent months and months and months both promoting and also working on. So whether she can say to her colleagues in the party, look, come with me, we can go and fight this battle. Well, they might just say, okay, well, Rishi's already fighting this battle and you've got some opinions on it as well. And so this is one of the reasons I don't think the rebellion necessarily will be as big as some people have been talking about in the past few days. The other issue with it is that she was Home Secretary while he failed on all of these yeah. things. And the trigger for her writing this letter is obviously him sacking her. But you could argue, and and, and there are some who are supportive of these policies, but not massive, a massive fan of her as an individual, who kind of went, if there was this agreement and you could see him breaking it, the fact that you're only talking about it now when he sacked you doesn't make you look amazingly yeah. good. And timing is remarkable, isn't it? Imagine if she was still in post when the Supreme Court judgment was read out yesterday. She would have been the one responsible and arguably attacked by the Supreme Court, or undermined by the Supreme Court. Uh, but just because she got sacked three days or two days before, she's able to release his letter and claim to she's be She's able to speak from a position prophet. of opposition. Exactly. Yes, it's yes. remarkable. I wonder the question... Therefore, is why did number 10 not wait until afterwards? Maybe because she would have resigned in the same way and said, I said this would happen. But it's um, it's remarkable that she's not been tainted with the judgment in the same way that Sunak has. See, I think the opposite, actually. Yeah. I think that... Uh, she would have been a Rwanda martyr. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that this letter would have had more force as an actual resignation letter. Yeah. I am quitting your government because I do not... The, the, the judgment went the way I told you it would go mm. and I don't trust you to come up with a credible plan B and so I am resigning. This, I read it and obviously it's explosive. I don't think we've seen a resignation letter quite like this since the last time she resigned from a government which was when Liz Truss sacked her and she also, she wrote this very pointed letter about, what was it, I made a mistake, I take responsibility for my actions, I have resigned. Mm. Um, which obviously was a comment on the Liz Trust leadership. Uh, but I think it has much less force coming in between yeah. her being sacked and this judgment. And to go back to the fact that she was sacked last week, there was lots of briefing about if he dared to sack her, then a whole load of 
allies would stand down and there would be this huge rebellion. And the right wing are angry. They're mm. very, very, very angry. But we haven't seen resignations. We've seen one public letter of no confidence uh, in Rishi Sunak. We've seen another letter from the new conservatives basically saying, we're not very happy with you, but we're still going to stay in the party. And you had this and it just comes across as a bit, a bit desperate, a bit... It lacks the authority that I think it would have had if it was an actual resignation letter after the Supreme Court ruling rather than a letter having been sacked before it. I agree. And it's not as if Rishi Sunak had the support of all these people last week. Yeah. This is not new. The party has been divided for years now. Rishi Sunak's not been able to pursue his policies because of those divisions. He's not been been able to pursue housing policy. Uh, Immigration policy has been up in the air. We know this is what's defining the Conservative Party at the moment. Just because we've got a Supreme Court judgment on the Rwanda deal doesn't mean it's anything. You can change those calculations. Okay, and we should say that since this letter came out, Braverman has actually come out um, uh, saying that Rishi Sunak's plan, alternative plan for Rwanda deal, also doesn't cut it. So we'll keep an eye on that. Um, Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so on Spotify, Twitter, or you can send us an email. Get in touch. If you're watching on YouTube, just leave a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Rachel Cunliffe and Freddie Hayward. We'll be back tomorrow to answer your questions in our next episode, You Ask Us. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.